This is the Accounting Insider Show. So this is another thing that a lot of investors are unaware of. There's got to be an easier way. It's achievable for anyone. It doesn't cost anything to set up a business. Because there are many great ideas out there, but it's the people that make ideas happen. Because once you unlock this formula, there's no reason to stop. You just get better and better at it. You just make so much money out of it. Thanks for tuning in. Today we are sitting down with John Reeves. John is a new friend of mine. Um, I guess we've been friends for like the last five years, but it's been a really exciting friendship and you are not a normal sort of... You, you live a pretty amazing life. That's what I was going to say. You're not a normal person, but you are a normal person. Uh, we, I want to go back to when we actually first started hanging out together and we met through a mutual friend, Ben, and Ben, every time I would meet up with him, Ben is a customer of mine, he would be talking about an amazing motorbike ride that he'd do every year through the Flinders Ranges, which is sort of like the hilly, hilly country. Most picturesque, beautiful red mountain range coming out of the ground um, and just dead flat plains around it in the middle of South Australia. And lots of gum trees, some water, but pretty dry and dusty. But it just makes the most amazing backdrops in any photograph that you take anywhere near those ranges. And to be able to ride his motorbike and my motorbike and John's motorbike through that mountain range was just an amazing experience. Ben was talking about these rides that he used to do with his brother Jim and a lot of sort of farmers from up in the mid-north of South Australia. Now, most of them are sort of sheep farmers. And I thought it was a great opportunity for me to, one, get away from the office, have some time off. Two, to meet a lot of, you know, like I guess they're called sheep station farmers from up mid-north and, and these guys are sort of larger than life characters anyway i did get invited on one of those rides and john you were on that ride i was it was fantastic yeah uh and it was i just want to paint the picture on what actually happened so we planned it for about four or five months in advance to the ride it was it was so well organized it was just there would have been and i'm not exaggerating 50 to 100 emails organizing the actual ride what you needed to take who was going to be there all the spares that you needed to take, um, all of the supplies that you needed to take. Uh, yeah, booking, rooms, who was going to be with who. Anyway, I think there were about 10 of us on that ride and we drove from Adelaide with our motorbikes on trailers. I'll come back to you, John. You didn't fit that criteria. I went up there with Geordie Crawford. Geordie drove his Hilux. We towed my trailer behind there. I think his motorbike was on the back of his ute and mine was in the trailer. And so I was sort of getting thrown with this group of guys, knowing two of them out of the ten. I didn't really know what to expect. It was a hell of a long way from Adelaide. We drove up to Port Augusta, then about another hour north, turned off, went sort of inlandish, and then along the edge of the Flinders Ranges. And then right at the end, with about 100 k's to go, we took off and drove over the mountain ranges along through all these creek beds, and it was dirt roads. It was just the most picturesque drive one would ever experience, and we ended up pulling into the little town of Arkarula. There was nothing in Arkarula apart from basically tourist grounds. We based ourselves there. We stayed there in some motel accommodation, which was pretty basic, and we would do day rides out from Arkarula every day. And then the, the highlight of the trip, I guess, was the overnight trip that we did where we, we actually took um, tents and backpacks and our own provisions and went up to uh, 
we sort of did a big ring route around the top of the Northern Flinders Ranges, and we stayed overnight at a station up there called Moola... Moola Watna. Moola Watna Station. All of the stations in that part of Australia are all named after Aboriginal terms. Didn't bump into any Aboriginals, but it was amazing going with these guys because they knew all of the station owners, and station owners and motorbikes don't really go together. They don't like anyone apart from their own staff and themselves riding motorbikes on their properties. But because we sort of knew them, they let us pass through and stay on their properties. So that was the first trip when I met you, John, and we sort of, I guess we sort of had this entrepreneurial link. You weren't a station owner. You were sort of involved in agriculture, but from a different dimension. But we gelled and we got along really well. And then I guess it was really the next trip that we did a year later where we got, we became better mates and built on that friendship. And there were some guys who pulled out of the group um, some others that came in. The first thing that I noticed about you was that you were hardcore and that you didn't tow your motorbike up there like all of us other guys. You actually rode the motorbike and you've got a road on off road bike, a Suzuki 650. You rode it from your house all the way up there and you packed all of your luggage into the backpack, which fits on the sort of rear mudguard, and it sort of balloons out. It's called a... Um, it's a giant loop. Giant loop, that's it. And it's bright yellow. And you you had all your clothes, like you'd have your jeans, and they would all be rolled up and packed down the bottom. You had your tent in there, um, sleeping bags, mattresses, rum. Rum. <laughs> Scotch. Scotch. I think that you had enough provisions for the whole week, but you and Ben sort of did a bit of a detour on the way up there and you drank most of the rum, didn't you, before you actually arrived? Before we started, really. <laughs> anyway, so we were up there with truckloads of gear and you basically just arrived with the clothes on your back, a tent and some basic provisions. And you, it was a real good lesson because you sort of taught us the art of travelling really light. And you had just as much fun, if not more, and you extended the whole holiday out by another day or two either end. So it was one hell of a large experience for you and Ben, whereas we sort of, as soon as we got in our Hilux and started heading back, well, that was more or less the trip over. Anyway, let's talk about the trip where we went from. We started at Yunta at um, Wadnaminga Station. We stayed in the Shearer's Quarters on the first night. You, uh, we all took some steak up cooked it on the barbie, sat around, drank some red wine and beers in the station, in, in the Shearer's quarters of that station. And it was a chance for us all to unload our motorbikes and just go for a little ride around the, the station and just make sure that they were all going okay. And then the next morning we got up early and headed off north up to Broken Hill and then further. We, we stayed out a couple of nights and that's right, we'd had massive rains and all the roads were blocked, and we were going to cancel the trip. But because we'd actually, um, we'd all ruled a week out of our diaries, we sort of looked at each other and thought, let's just go anyway, because we'll have a good time. And even though the roads might be closed, there's going to be some that are open. And so half the crew dropped out. And I think that at that stage, because we'd had such a big year the year before, it blew out to like 14 or 16 people. Half of them dropped out, so we were down to like seven or eight. And when we got up there, we'd had the most amazing time because all of the roads had just reopened. So 
riding your motorbike over these dirt roads which had been flooded out and then they had a sort of a thick crust of dirt over the top of clay and it was almost like a similar sensation to riding a snowboard through fresh powder because these roads were just in pristine condition and we were the first ones to go through them. And so what looked like a disaster trip actually turned into an extraordinary trip. And I'm telling you all of this for a reason because you and I had sort of agreed that we, because we had businesses that were running back in Adelaide, we would leave early and come back and run those businesses. But because we were having such a good time, we got to Cameron's Corner. So I think that's about 700 kilometres north of where we started even though we'd sort of um, deviated all over the place. But we got to Cameron Corner, which is the border between Queensland, South Australia and New South Wales. Couldn't believe we'd made it. And so we were. it was the first time that we'd come back into telephone contact. We rang all of our wives and partners and I remember filling up my motorbike with petrol, having a counter meal at the Cameron Corner Hotel and then I was pretty much ringing my wife to tell her that I was going to be another two or three days later because all the group were having so much fun that we were going to push on further right up to Inaminka. Anyway, when I made the phone call, I can remember that it went to message bank, so I thought, beauty, I've left the message. I'm not going to get a no. And then I went back out to fill up my motorbike and the lady behind the counter came out and was carrying the phone. She said, somebody's wife's on the phone. She's a little bit upset. So that was my wife and course she was at home with the three kids and they all had gastro she hasn't slept they were up vomiting all night so she said could you come back to me and at this stage I was one of the last to, to fill my motorbike up with petrol so the rest of the group had pushed on I had John Rymer with me you were you had decided at that point that you were going to carry on and not go back with me so I sat down with John and I said I'm going to ride back by myself, which is a big no-no out in the middle of the desert because I didn't have any spare supplies like you did. I was we, we sort of had a support vehicle with us and that had all of the food and spare parts and spare tyres. So I remember riding back from Cameron Corner to Yunta by myself, which was 700 kilometres, and it was the most exhilarating and most terrifying thing that I've done in my life, I think, and... I set off that night at about four o'clock. John said, look, if you've got to go, go. I'll tell the others. I'll catch up with them. But make sure when you get in um, to Tipperborough tonight that you ring Jim at the station and tell him that you're okay and that you've made it and can he send a car up to meet you halfway the next day. So I thought, I'll go. I'm going to go for it. So I was so scared when I was leaving Cameron Corner that I teamed up with a group of full-drive cars and we headed through the... Um, through the dirt roads back into Tipperborough and it was on sort of dusk, nightfall. My light on my bike wasn't very bright so I thought if I tag along with these cars I'll be able to use their lights. They'll scare away all the kangaroos which are a big risk on a motorbike in the middle of the outback. So I made it into Tipperborough at about 6 or 7 at night. It was dark. I pulled into the pub, rode my motorbike straight up to the front bar, parked just outside and stayed the night there, rang Jim, had a great time. Well, when I, I set off the next morning, and now Jim told me under no circumstances are you to leave before daylight because there's so many kangaroos on the road and you don't want to have an accident. So I headed off as the sun was just peeking up over the horizon. 
and looking back that morning, I knew that I had to ride maybe 600 kilometers and I didn't have enough fuel. I had to time it so that I arrived at Pack Saddle, which was 300 kilometers away when they opened. And in the end, I made it. But if I would have fallen off, I didn't have, no one would have known I was there. And there was no mobile phone reception. Um, it would have taken days for anyone to find me if I would have, you know, gone too fast around a corner and ended up in the scrub or hit a kangaroo or a cow or something out there. But setting off in the morning, I remember my knees on my legs were just, they were shaking against the petrol tank. It was just um, such a, uh, just looking back, it was, it was terrifying. And then, because I knew that there was, my bike actually had some mechanical problems too. The 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 rear tire that had been put on the, on the back of it was actually too big for the bike. So that every time the chain would go around, it would it would rip off chunks of tread on the tire. So at any point, my back tire could have exploded. And then what do I do if I'm out in the middle of nowhere? But I could see Broken Hill eventually, like 150 kilometers ahead. 100 kilometers ahead, 80, 70. And every time I'd see the little sign on the edge of the road drop down 10 kilometers, I'd sort of get so excited. And then I finally got within maybe 40 or 50 Ks and I got mobile phone reception. And I knew that I'd sort of more or less made it. I still had to get onto Yunta, but I pulled into Broken Hill. I went straight to the Mitre 10. I adjusted my chain. I bought some tools. I did it on the footpath outside of Mitre 10 at Broken Hill. And then I pulled into um, Coburn and they'd already sent a car up and I met and met the person who'd come up and I rode my bike onto the trailer and I was so excited. I felt like kissing my motorbike. Never missed a beat. It didn't break down. The tyre held out. And looking back, it was just, it was one hell of an adventure. And even just riding through that scrub in the early morning, just looking over the horizon as the hill, as the sun was shining over the scrub and looking at the red dirt and... Half the, the road was dirt, half of it was bitumen, but it was just it was just an incredible experience. And I look back and I think that everything could have gone wrong and there was no, it was either going to be disaster or a total exhilaration and it ended up being total exhilaration. You can understand what I'm talking about, John. Oh, You're a motorbike rider. Yeah, I can. What, you pushed on and went up to Inaminka with the group. Yeah, we went up to Inaminka along the sort of, um, it was the old Streslecky track we started on, I think. Mm. And then when we got to Cameron's Corner, it was just a, basically an outback station track through various stations right up into Inaminka. Um, we stayed there for a night just out of Inaminka and then took the new Streslecky track back, which was... was terrible, wasn't it? it Lots of big It had been truck. so wet. And there yeah. were ruts through the road. And well, ruts you- that you'd lose a small child in. No worries at all. Okay. And which is quite hard to navigate when you're riding a two-wheel motorbike at high speed and you've got tiny tyres and you want to sort of float over at the road, but when there's a big truck rut to the left or to the right, sometimes when you fly over that, your tyres can get stuck in them and it can almost throw you off balance. Can't it? Now, I just wanted to talk about that story because I wanted to get it down and recorded because I, I remember that as a really big event in my life. Now, let's talk about you, John, enough about me. You grew up down in southern South Australia on a farm. That's correct, yeah. Where did you go to school? 
went to school at Mount Burr Primary School, which is sort of a, a lower southeastern Australian little tiny timber town, forestry what did, town. What did mum and dad do? Mum and dad were farmers on a high rainfall intensive property uh, near the town of Mount Burr or Millicent um, that my grandfather had bought after the war when he returned home from the war. What sort of farming? Um, dad farmed sheep and cattle. Pretty, pretty simple operator, but he was effective and he was a good farmer. And was he a big influence on your life? He was a good friend to me. Business influence, not as much, but he was a good friend. Conservative, would you say? He was conservative. For his generation, he probably wasn't as conservative as a lot of people. So, you know, maybe in hindsight, he really wasn't probably that conservative, to be honest, now I really think about it. Um, But he also wasn't out there, but he was a solid farmer and he was quite innovative. What did he teach you about money? Um, don't spend any more than you have. He'd be on your case when you were 18 and you came home with a V8 U. On my case all the time. Mum more so. Mum way more so. Okay. Hmm. Um, do you feel when you were growing up, how, how do you feel that you were travelling financially? Did you go without? Or Never. Were you... I sort of grew up through the Australian boom in agriculture where we had a reserve price scheme on our wall clip, which we had a quite, a quite a good size wall clip. Things were cheap. The economy was booming. I don't ever remember being short and neither do my parents, to be honest. It was only a modest farm, but agriculture in the 80s and 70s in Australia was unprecedented and has not reached that scale since. Um, brothers and sisters? One brother and one sister who I grew up with, they were a bit older than me. So my sister was my best friend on the farm and we spent, we were inseparable. We spent, you know, forever shooting ducks and trapping foxes and just had a ball together really out in the scrub and the farm. It was, was idyllic. Would you do that after you got home from school at night? Or Always. Or on weekends? Yeah, and we, on the weekends we'd sleep out under the stars with guns and just, we had a ball. It was fantastic. Making cubby houses and forts in the scrub. And how many acres was the farm? Um, it was a thousand acres, near enough. So massive property with dams and gum trees and lots of swamps, swamp land. Could you get lost on the property? Not really lost. No, not on this property. It was actually quite. It was it was open with big, big southern Australian red gums um, and lots of swamp country. But other than that, it was open with very small patches of scrub. So as a little kid, it just felt enormous though. So you, so your sister and you would both have a motorbike? I would have a motorbike and she'd drive the little farm car. And then, so you'd head off? We'd head off. You'd tell mum and dad you were going out for the night. You wouldn't take... tell them much really. We'd just sneak off most of the time. And would you have a tent? Would you have a fire? We had fires. Dogs. You know what? We didn't have tents really. Most of the time we took dunas and a great big old tarpaulin and we'd just put it on the ground and we'd sleep under the tarpaulin and steal the dunas off our beds. Would you have Two a dogs. Fire? Fire always. Yeah. Two dogs and, and, s- and a slug gun. And set traps. Set traps for rabbits. Before you go to bed? Yeah, always. And a bit of toilet paper over the plate yep. and then sprinkle yep. a bit of soil on top. Yep, trap rabbits in the old days when they were legal. So yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, that's going back, isn't it? And then get up first light and go and check the traps. Check the traps, catch rabbits, skin them, cook them, prepare them, and we'd always eat them. Or if we couldn't eat them all, we'd always feed the dogs with them. And then you'd also what go spotlighting at night? Spotlighting at night, 
for foxes. You mainly. and her. And you'd know, obviously, Dad would tell you where the foxes were. And Not really. He wasn't into it. We just took off on our own. He wasn't really into spotlighting, so we just went with by ourselves. And and uh, 22s? Uh, 22s, shotgun. Yeah. S- scope on the 22? Scope on the 22. Oh, this sounds amazing. Yeah. It would have been so much fun. And it was fun. You would have spent hardly any time at the house. You no. always just came back for meals. Yeah, and often I was by myself as well. So when my sister wasn't around, she went away to boarding school. And so I spent about three years just poking around on my own. We used to, I used to make rafts and go out on this swamp and cover, my, cover the raft and myself with the bulrush reeds on the swamp. So I was totally camouflaged, absolutely covered in this little raft. And I'd see a little place out the front where I'd stick my slug gun when I was quite young. And ducks, black ducks, would come and land. And eventually they'd realise they, you know, they couldn't see me. And they would land literally five to ten metres away from me. And I would be able to shoot one of these black ducks with a slug gun. And some, I remember one day I was out there and I reckon I got six or seven beautiful fat black ducks, took them back and fed everyone with them and proud as punch when I was about nine, eight or nine, I reckon. What about your older brother? He wasn't into the farming as much as you? He left for boarding school when I was... He's five years older and he left to go to boarding school when he was in year eight. What boarding school were you He went to Prince Alfred College in Adelaide. I saw you did as well. I was checking your profile last night. Yeah. You went there for three years? Three years. My brother went for five. And you boarded as well? I boarded. Okay. So that would have been pretty hard for you to leave the farm, the local high school or college or whatever you went to, and then be shipped off into boarding school in Adelaide? It was difficult, but there was an anomaly because in 1983, just before I went to boarding school, we lost 100% of our farm in the Ash Wednesday bushfire. So we had a full wipeout, lost our farmhouse, 100-year-old house. All of our livestock, all of our fences, all of our sheds were destroyed in a bushfire. So that made it sort of, I don't know, I just sort of disappeared after that and everyone was so busy rebuilding this. It was like... It was literally like a, you know, an H-bomb had gone off on the property, essentially. There was nothing left. Everything was wiped out. The insurance uh, assessment was 100%. There was not a thing standing, not a post, not an animal, not a building, nothing, not a tree. It was black, smoking, ruined the whole entire place. Did your dad try to stay and fight? Um Dad was on the fire truck because on that day, Nash Wednesday in 83, um, there were 27 people in our district that were killed, a family, um, his wife and all of his four children who were dearest family friends of ours were killed just down the road from us. She was killed in the car with her four children. Trying to escape the trying fire. Trying to escape the Stayed fire. Stayed at the house at the last minute and then drove off. Drove off, tried to do a Yui in the scrub as my mother actually did, but this family got stuck in the grass, couldn't get off and the fire killed them all. What? Car slipping? The car just was slipping in the grass. She just got, she went, she panicked, drove off the road, two-wheel drive car, couldn't get back off the side of the road and the bushfire was hurtling along at about 80 miles an hour. She was killed along with, I think, her and, so there was a family of five were killed in that car and there was another 21 around the district. See, well, you've got to remember, we're sort of analysing that because our house is in a pretty bad fire-prone zone. You wouldn't be able to see because there would be so much smoke. Or maybe she was inattentive looking back at one of the kids in the Confusion. back. Confusion. Confusion. So, you know, it's, it's like, how can you go off the road? But in actual fact, under extreme circumstances like that, it's quite understandable. But if she would have been in a four-wheel drive, she might have been okay. Maybe. There's also the, a very quick anomaly is there's the fire front. There's a little front comes through first. So when my mum 
was at home, she could see smoke and she saw all these flames coming up the back of the shed and she panicked and went, you know, there's a fire coming. She started to stuff. She could see these flames licking along the paddock. And then she went outside and sort of, she said it felt really eerie and it suddenly became very quiet. And then all this ash started to rain down on her head. And she was going, what's going on? She was really confused and she was panicking. She felt all goosebumpy and weird because it was so quiet. And all this ash started to fall and then she could feel this roar and she could almost feel like the oxygen was being sucked out of where she was breathing. And then she looked up by the shed. It's probably a 50-foot high hay shed. And above the hay shed was like a red wall rolling along the paddock. And she realized that that was the main fire front was coming. And she said it was like an inferno. She got in her car and she drove as fast as she could. And she said the thing was catching her. was coming so quickly. And she said it was just incredible. So they, she grabbed her next-door neighbor and they just tore off into Mount Bear and all they could see in this revision mirror was just this rolling wall of fire just rolling along the paddocks. Like a wave. Like a wave, yeah. It, where were you on that day? I was at school watching okay. the fire from our school oval. And your brother? He was in Adelaide. And sister? Adelaide. The so mum was at home basically trying to own. fight the fire by herself. Yeah, and dad and was out on the fire truck running from it actually. There was nothing they could do. And... If your mum would have stayed and tried to save the house, oh, no it chance. would have been all over. 100%. Was it a stone home or was it a timber yeah, It was actually it was a timber-framed house built in 1884 and it had charcoal in the walls. So in the old days, the old charcoal walls as insulation. So it was just a, it was a beautiful old place, but it was built with, out of corrugated iron in, in the 1880s. Okay, so you left, went to PAC for three years. Did you sort of feel a bit like a penguin in the desert there? Yeah, I didn't enjoy it. No. Do you have any friends today from there? Not particularly, no. Okay. I've got some I've got some guys that I know and, you know, they're around and, yeah, they're friends, but I don't really connect. It's, it's funny because you say, oh, well, you didn't integrate. But in actual fact, it wasn't really for you because then you – I know that you went to Roseworthy after that to study – Farm at, management. Farm management. And you, I know you had the time of your life there. You had a ball. And pretty well everyone in your class is still close, mate. All of them. <laughs> I can't believe that. And um, there was a lot of shenanigans. There were quite a few girls and boys. And um, everyone partied together. Everyone drank together. Everyone studied together. Everyone got through the course together. Had one hell of a time doing it all. Everyone passed. It was the best Three, uh, well, I was actually only there for two years, to be honest, but it was the best two years of my life. But is it, am I right in saying Ben was in the course? Ben was in the course. Was John Reg in the course? He was. And you. So three out of that course were on our motorbike ride. Yeah. <laughs> Which is phenomenal. I don't know. How many were in your year when you were at Roseworthy? Um, in our class, there were 22 of us. And I still see seven of them. That's incredible. Mm. So you passed that and then went back to the farm Correct. at Mount Burr. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? Went back to the farm. My dad had a nasty heart operation when he was 54, 53, and I was 20, and he was unable to manage the farm. So I sort of went, right, I got chucked in at the deep end at 20, been at Roseworthy, came home, then realised I had to manage this farm. You know, I'd only really been thinking about what party I was going to next. And all of a sudden I went, hang on a minute, I've got to manage this farm and look after two families. It's all my responsibility. Hang on, what's, what's the second family? Um, well, me, my mum and dad, and my sister was also dependent at the time. So one one big family? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One big family. Mm. 
And my grand and grandpa, though. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So was dad, was he basically incapacitated after that operation? He was very incapacitated for a number of years, both physically. And mentally. Yeah. Okay. And so he couldn't handle any pressure. You basically took all the full responsibility onto your shoulders. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. And then how many years did you do that for? I did that for 23 years, I think. 23 years? Yeah. 23, I think. Ran the farm? Yes. Yeah. Expanded. We bought farms and sold farms. and So you sort of took it to the next level. And I guess if if your dad wasn't, you know, up to his, you know, it was only sort of 60, 70% of what he formerly was... I'd imagine that you and your mum together or was it you and your grandparents who sort of took the farm to the next level? Mm, me and me probably realistically. You yeah. and you, yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, now, something that I want to talk about is techno grazing. When does that plug in? Is that now? Techno grazing. Ready? Is, is that, are we about to talk about that now? That's Did you do that on that farm and these neighbouring farms that you'd acquired? Yes. Okay, correct. so we're ready for techno grazing. Okay, yep. can you tell us about yep. it please? Bought, bought a couple of farms, sold one. Moved it to another one. So we ended up with the property all in one hit. So we ended up with 2,000 acres all in the same spot. So one big property. Mm-hmm. Um, and then learnt a friend of mine called Johnny Boxham, who was a very dear friend who also went to Roseworthy, but a, a bit older than me. But um, we ended up being great mates. And he had this pear brain scheme called techno grazing, which is a New Zealand very intensive grass farming technique. So we took off. Because, you know, I had quite a lot of debt and the normal farming practices returned perhaps three at the time percent return to capital. Techno grazing was up over 10 in theory. So we took off to New Zealand, learned how to do this techno grazing course for... Hang on, I have to interrupt. Did he read about it? How did he come across it? He came across it through the guy he works for who was a friend of the guy called Harry Weir in New Zealand that invented this techno farming. Okay. Four Frisian bulls, actually. Okay, well, so it was it whereabouts was it? I imagine if it was in New Zealand, it was around Hamilton. It was actually, funny enough, it was a Frisian bull techno farming system for farming young Frisian bulls, and it was at Bulls in Queens, in, in New Zealand. The, the town is called Bulls. <laughs> North Island, South Island. North uh, bottom of the North Island near Palmerston North. Okay. So you bought some tickets. There was a course coming up. How long did the course run for? Eight days. Right. So you bought the ticket. You and, is it Boxy? John Boxham. Boxy. Boxy and yourself fly over there, stay there for eight days. What did you think when you went there? Was it? It was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. The but, amount of But grass. how do you say that? Like, you've been a farmer oh. for 22 years. You know everything there is. You've grown up on a farm. You live, sleep, eat and breathe farming. Now you've been introduced to this new technique and you're saying it's mind-blowing. A farm normally puts some sheep. Let's say a paddock's 50 acres, put, you know, 250 sheep on 50 acres, put the rams in, mark the lambs. This was 250 acres. That same 50-acre paddock was divided up into 70 paddocks in laneways and growing three to four times as much grass and turning off instead of 260 or 70 sheep, it would be turning off six to 700 sheep off the exact wait, same wait, area. Wait, 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 wait. So um, this is, I love this because this is so interesting and it's such a, a new concept. How did you, did you grow extra grass? Did you put extra fertilizer on? Not extra fertilizer. It's about rest. So... 
you have a very small number of animals in a laneway that looks like a cricket pitch, an ordinary cricket pitch. So imagine you've got a square paddock with 20 cricket pitches that are all fenced off like laneways. You have fences in front, temporary fences. So it's like a checkerboard. Electric fences. Electric, very specifically built electric fences. And on each one of the checkerboard squares in a line across, there's a group of little animals on each, the, on, the, on the black, the white, the black, the white, is a group of animals. And then you move the fence and all these group of animals go into their next little checkerboard and the next one. And so you're resting the paddock behind it. So you're grazing new grass, new grass, new grass, new grass every two days. So why does the grass grow faster? Because you're resting it. Because if you have set stocking, you've got an animal, you've got a little piece of grass, the animal keeps nibbling it, nibbling it, nibbling it, nibbling it. The leaf area index and its ability to catch sunlight, grow root and nutrient is, is compromised because it's always being eaten. It's like pruning an apple tree all year. It just goes, oh, I can't, what do I do? You need to prune it and then let it grow again and then prune it. You can't keep pruning and pruning and pruning and pruning. So what is the actual break that you're giving this blade of grass? It depends on the time of year. It's, it's, it, it depends on the growing season. So in the peak of the growing season, you'd give this blade of grass 30 days rest. And in the long, hot Australian summer with a belting, scorching sun and very dry conditions, you might give it three months rest. Okay. So you're irrigating during summer? No irrigation. No irrigation. All dry land. But then you must be supplement feeding them. No supplementing because you're giving it rest. So you've got a perennial plant growing a deep tap root that's had the right amount of rest so that it isn't stressed. Green grass all year round. So I have an aerial photograph of our property now. And from the air, it's the only green square for tens of thousands of hectares. Okay. I've I've lost the point there because... Um, you like the only way I know green grass to grow in the middle of my summer on my farm is for me to put a sprinkler on it. That's correct. But if you have a perennial plant as against an annual plant, oh, so you planted a new grass on there. We always had perennials, but because you, the more you rest a property and rest it correctly, the perennials spread. They don't diminish. They actually get thicker and they self-seed because you let them go to seed in the summer, their seed drops on the ground, it's enough rest so the seed naturally starts to regenerate and you find within a few years you have a massive regeneration of perennial plants without actually doing much at all other than managing the grass with livestock. So is the perennial loosened? The perennial was actually phalaris and ryegrass, not loosened on our property. So it's And a, that will grow all year round? All year round. Naturally. Naturally. All year round. Okay. So this is quite exciting. So throw the sheep out because you didn't apply that principle. I I presume that they're using sheep in New Zealand, but you actually adopted it to Frisian bull calves. Correct. Now, Frisian bull calves, I've learned since going motorbike riding with you, they are the fastest growing uh, cow that you can buy. That's correct because they're entire. So they're not castrated. They're an entire animal high growth rate because they have a lot of testosterone and they look skinny out in the paddock so i wouldn't have picked them because they're not a beef cow beef beef animal they're designed for they're not they're not a beef cow but they have a very fast growth rate very lean body fat always but grow very rapidly grow tall grow tall put on weight very rapidly okay and you would um Buy them from the dairy, the local dairy farmer at Mount Burr. 
and Jono Box and my friend would rear them from a little bobby calf up to about 180 kilos. Yes. And we was... would get the calf from 180 to around 250 out on just a sort of a the same principle but not as intensive, bigger paddocks. So let's just go back to Boxy. He's living on a house block in the city. He's living on a house block on a farm. On a farm. No, he lives on a farm. So how many calves is he having at a... Uh, I reckon he had up to 7,000 calves Seven? in sheds, like big sheds. Like, like pig a, farming sort of thing. Like pig farming essentially, yeah. Were, were they custom-built sheds? That yes, custom-built for calves, calf-rearing sheds. What did that cost to set that up? I reckon it might have cost him about 550 grand, I think, to set up around about that. This is a massive cost. Yeah. So, I'm sorry. How can... I'm missing this because he's... He's borrowed the money to build a $550,000... And buy a farm. ...series of sheds and farm mm. on his property. Correct. Are you in a, a legal partnership agreement with him at this point? We were in a... We had a supply agreement, yes. So he agreed to supply you the calves. He did. How, about every year, we bought about 1600 off him. Okay. What would he pay for them? He would pay... I reckon they're about 80 bucks each. And he'd get them from the local dairy farmers? Correct. Was there an endless supply of dairy farmers down there? How many were you endless, talking? No, endless supply of calves. How far would he have to drive to pick them up? Uh, radius of 50 k's. Okay, so he's doing that. He'd bring them back. He'd give them a bag of Dinkovit, which was, say, 80 bucks. Mm, he'd spend about 100 bucks all up on feed, 120. Okay, so it's cost him 200. Yep. And then he would put them on your property or someone else's property? We would then purchase them from him. For how much? I reckon we were paying about two, three hundred and twenty bucks, three ten. So he's making a hundred and ten dollars. Is that about right? About right, yeah. About eight. I think it was actually about eighty bucks a calf. Eighty bucks. Well, that doesn't seem a lot, but anyway, seven thousand. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Hmm. So, let's go back to the model, and then. You would have them unloaded at your place. He would deliver them? Correct. And then would you put them straight into this techno farming 50 acres? No, they would be background fed from, say, we get them at, say, 220 kilos and we'd get them to about, look, around about 280 to 300. So we put about 80 kilos on them in body weight. Sorry, but they would arrive off the truck, then they'd go into a paddock. They into a paddock and they'd be supplementary fed further. You would do that? I would do that. In self-feeders, they'd have a grain supplement. Not a feed lot, but what? on grass with a supplement to get them from their 200, 180 to 200, 170, 180 kilos up to about 250 to 260 to 270. What was the supplement? Supplement is just a mix of uh, lupins, wheat and salt and just a general uh, minerals, calcium, just a uh, magnesium, um, just a general mix to supplement their growth because they're still quite young. Did you make that? Did you make that mix up yourself? We would get a nutritionist to come and look at what we needed, and they would blend it, custom blend it for what we were doing. So I outsourced someone to say, "John, you need this," and I go, "Cool, thanks. Let's have that." Okay, so they're out in the paddock. They're yep. feeding. They're eating this. Yep. And then how long are they in that paddock situation before you put them into that technique? About one season. So really, look, a bit, a bit under 12 months, 10 okay. months. Okay. Then they would go into the intensive... Full-on, fully-fledged techno system, which is like driving a Ferrari, essentially. Yeah. Now, can, we, can I talk about the term that um, Amanda used? She said you were so 
busy that you'd actually have to take a leak while you're walking along. <laughs> that is correct. Well, she, <laughs> I, that is so true. And my brother-in-law always laughs about that as well. And it, I've it thought actually, about it, it is actually true. Why is it? Why were you so busy? <laughs> I couldn't stop walking. There was no way I could stop. I was walking. I had I had two thousand acres cut up into techno. I had any one time I had fifteen hundred. 150 to 180 kilo calves on feed out in the paddock and they were being shifted every three or four days. And then I had a techno system with uh, 2,200 bulls on them in groups of eight, all needing to be shifted every single day. Now, okay, can I just elaborate on this? Because I've since spoken to other people about doing exactly this and I spoke to Ben, in fact, and I said, Ben, why can't we reinvent techno farming? And he said, I did, he tried it. He went, he hired a property, leased some land, and got all these bulls together and put them on the farm. And it was great because he had uh, reasonable rent. But he said that they are such an unusual animal that they would all basically mount each other in the paddock. And you'd have a long line of, like, it could be 20 or 30 of them, all, you know, basically doing this extraordinary, I don't know, um, Congo line. But they, to the point where they're smashing each other's hips and basically killing each other. Now, how, I guess, are you saying that if you only had eight in this little cricket pitch, it wasn't wide enough for them to do that? Or And plus they're them, eating. If you move them every day, they don't get to... Like, how did you overcome the obvious problems that he encountered? Because Ben's system wasn't a techno system. It's such. He just had paddocks that he shifted larger mobs from paddock to paddock. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like fine-tuning a racing engine. If, you, if it's out of tune, it's not going to run very well and it's going to use too much fuel and it's not going to, it's going to only run on half the number of cylinders and it's not going to work correctly. So this is the same thing. The balls need to be in very small groups. So when you shift them, if you get them hungry, if you shift that tape in front of them at the wrong time and they're hungry, they'll get agitated and they'll start fighting and they'll punch it, they'll hammer each other and get really upset. But if you shift it at the right time, they go hungry, 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 shift the tape, eat, 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 shift it, peaceful as a lamb. You can look down the line and there's just, you can actually hear down one line, eight times eight, 64, say 75 balls in a line, like a checkerboard, each with their cricket pitch. And all you can hear is the sound of crunching grass. That's it. And so the next day you shift them at the right time, might be a day, might be two days, into the next cell or little checkerboard square and you can hear... You can just hear them crunching, and it's silent. There is no balls fighting. As soon as you make an error... None mating. None mating. As soon as you make an error, then you know you've done something wrong because they're getting agitated, they're hungry, you know. And if they're really full, really full, and there's too much grass, then they tend to just lie down. How often did you have to weigh them? Hmm... We actually didn't weigh them that often. When we first started, we weighed them a lot. And in the end, we realized it was pointless because you could tell. You could just see visually. Yeah, okay. So we didn't want to upset them. It was a big job to weigh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of mobs of cattle. So um, we didn't weigh them very often, but you could see. So we probably only really, during the growing season, twice. That's all. So, okay. So they're out on supplements for 12 months in the paddock. Then they go into the techno, techno grazing, which... It sounds like the techno grazing actually sort of finishes them off. That's correct. And is better than this supplement feeding. Yeah. Way better. And cheaper too for you, but you've just got to monitor That's it. That's where the profit is. And yeah. move. What would the setup for 50 acres of the electric fencing cost? Um, you'd have to have water in there as well, wouldn't you? 
little micro troughs. So I think we I think we had access to three thousand seven hundred watered paddocks on our property. So, so it wasn't we, fifty acres. You rolled this techno grazing out to how many acres? Uh, all up, we rolled it out over fourteen hundred acres, and we had some bigger paddocks for the for the supplements for the for the calves that were coming up to be finished on the techno. So how many guys did you have giving you a hand? One. One guy. Girl. So you're... A girl. I employed a girl. Her name was Bev. And was she good at her She job? was great. She rode the motorbike all day shifting tapes to move all the balls. So you had a, a motorbike, four-wheel motorbike, all with electric, all with this system for pulling up, automatically pulling up all the temporary fencing. It rolled it all up and stacked it all and then she'd roar off and lay another tape and all the balls would walk forward. This is we're talking four wheeler motorbike with four a trailer. Four wheel motorbike, no trailer, or on the motorbike itself. The so fence would just roll up. No, on the, your- it's got a little plucker. So you're driving along and it plucks out the temporary fence, and you've got a little spinner, like a little wire roller, automatically going on a, on an automatic clutch, and that's spinning the wire up, automatically pulling the post out. You whip the post out, put it in a rack, pull the fence up, turn around and lay it back out, and then you drop the other tape down. So you just let it fall on the ground. The little poly tape like a little piece of string that was electrified all the balls would suddenly jump out jump over the top of it and you tighten it up again and away you went and then the next day you do the same the same the same so they're just slowly marching their way down the cricket pitch in little blocks so cost wise cost wise i'm just trying to think micro- about it. it was 450 bucks a hectare to set up 500 bucks a hectare 450 so a big cost. You had to borrow the money. I imagine it wouldn't have come out of yeah, cash flow. Yes, yes. Borrow against the farm. Yeah. All right. So how long did this techno grazing last? How long did you do it for? I did it for five years. Do you think you're going to have a nervous breakdown with all these cows? And uh, I did get quite stressed in the end. <laughs> You'd be waking up at like four o'clock in the morning thinking, now I've got to move that cricket pitch to there and that cow there and they're at the end of their run. So One know. morning we had a neighbour's party. So we'd gone over to this party, had a bit of a late night. So I was a bit, you know, a little bit worse for wear in the morning. Height of the season, in the spring, I think we might have had 1,600 bulls in paddocks, all in mobs of eight, all big now. They're all 600 kilos, 550 kilos, big thick shoulders. The night of this party we had a storm and a lot of lightning really everywhere all over the paddock and a power failure. So I remember waking up at, in the morning after this party and I could just, I knew something was wrong. I just felt, I felt ill. And I could hear this noise. It was like a, it was so loud and it was the sound of, I reckon there was 250, 500 kilo Frisian bulls in a rugby scrum at the end of one of the paddocks because the electricity had scared them, the lightning had scared them. The power had gone off so the fences weren't electric anymore. They were big, strong balls and they were growly and thick-shouldered with big, thick heads on them. And they were in a rugby scrum, 250 in the corner of the paddock. And I just stood on the paddock and there was wire and tapes everywhere and balls fighting. And I just went, I really need to sort this out. And So Bev and I just went, come on, Bev. I said, Look, we've got a job to do. And we slowly cut them out. Like we'd sort of get Almost a small mob in. Well, mob of about 10. So we'd cut 10 out, take them into the yards, take 10 out, take 10 out, take 10 out. And they're all tagged accordingly. So you knew whose mate was who. So tag 
So balls number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight knew each other. So you had to get those balls back together again because if you put a strange one in, they'll kill him because they don't know him. So we had to get them all sorted out. It took us about two days, but we did it. Strain all the wire up, put all the tapes in, put them all back in, turn the power on, and away we go again. <laughs> yeah, I remember you telling me one more story about how you must have stuffed up the timing or something and you overgrazed a section of the property. Yeah, that's correct. Can you tell us about that, please? Overgrazed. So I made it. Look, I, I think what happened essentially was this was just by nat, nat, naturally, it wasn't a very good piece of land. So I wasn't growing as much grass. And it was a, maybe a paddock of 50 acres, and I had too many stock on it. And I, I don't really know why particularly, but I, because I was doing it, the, treating it the same as every other paddock, you know, designed into their cricket pitches, I was shifting these cattle the same time. In my heart, I was very busy and I sort of looked at this paddock and I knew I was overgrazing it. I knew it was too short, but I needed to take cattle out of it and I had nowhere to put them. You know, I had so many other paddocks, I just sort of kept putting it out of my mind, if you like. I kept pushing it away and not dealing with it. And at the end of that growing season, I looked back at this particular section of 50 acres and I went, I've really overgrazed it and I've not, I have done not a very good job. I haven't looked after the plants. So I took the cattle off it and rested it. And you know what? It took two years for it to come good. It did. It took two years. It was overgrazed. I had half the number of balls on it than on the one next door. The perennial plants suffered I just couldn't get it to go again. But in two years of nurturing it and babying it with probably a 50% loss of production, eventually it got back to where it was. So that's how techno gives you a huge insight into how important it is to to manage grass versus rainfall. And then it leads into the drought discussion, I think, about overgrazing and what actually is drought. Right. Anyway. Okay. You then had someone who approached you to buy the farm? Yes. At a astronomically high price. Correct. Because they wanted to implement exactly the same system. Yes, and they wanted to run. They're actually, they wanted to run their dairy cattle on it. No, they did, yeah. They did. And cows cows and bulls this time around. And now Boxy, uh, he was in a bit of financial strife. He, he over-borrowed, over-committed, got himself in a lot of trouble. Was that as a result of the $500,000 loan for those sheds we're talking yeah, about? Yeah, and the farm. He bought a farm and the sheds. He bought a oh, farm as well. Oh, both of them. So we're talking probably north of a million dollars. Oh, way north. I think it was 1.7 he owed. 1.6. It's a lot back then. It's a lot. And the... what? Like, why didn't the model work for him? Like, because... It wasn't a natural system. This was the floor in it. The balls... It was a natural farming grazing system. Beautifully low input. Works on nature. John was like a pig shed. He had cows and he had calves in mm. a shed. Trouble with disease. Oh, so one, so they weren't isolated. So if disease broke out at one side of the shed, and yeah. I'm talking, uh, I imagine when you're talking diseases, you're talking about um, gastro. Yeah, gas, gastro, that's all. Yeah, And that would go through the whole shed. Yeah, just gastro, lose, no other disease. Yeah. So the model worked. He was, enable, he was able to sell enough to you. Yes, you could take as many as you got. So that wasn't, it, it was just that he couldn't keep up with. Supplying. He got too intensive. He tried, he had too many clients because we had, there were six of us in this techno group all doing it. Very successful. All thinking, oh my God, these balls are, we're making good money because we were making terrific money out of it. He did too, he, he bit off more than he could chew. There were, he was trying to do too many. They were getting, the calves weren't as good a quality. He was putting too many in a paddock. Too, way too many and not enough quality in, in the cattle that we were getting. 
And then he got himself in trouble and he couldn't supply the contract with another huge operator. He had 10,000 balls, the other guy. And he couldn't supply them. And in the end, in the end, it was yes, too much for him. It was too much. He committed suicide. That would have been terrible. Mm. But, but was that after you sold the farm or before? Just before. And was that one of the uh, motivators to sell? I think it, in hindsight, it was my, you know, we were inseparable for 20 years and the calf supply dwindled and it became difficult. So, yeah, yeah. we did. We sold the farm. But we sold it for three times what we paid for it. So That's it a phenomenal good. return. Yeah. And it's still – the thing is, though, that that model still applies today and would still work today. It still works today. In fact, the farm that I sold has still got the same system. It hasn't been pulled out. Still operating technology. Still operating, yeah. yeah. It's a slightly modified version but in, in principle, those fences are still there. And still doing it with bull calves? Uh, no, no. Freezing cows. Freezing cows now. Yeah, they do some bull calves as well, but it's mostly heifers. So they've sort of got a – it's like not a Ferrari. It's now, you know, perhaps, Commodore. It's a, perhaps it's a Commodore. Yeah. So it's sort of changed down a few gears, but they still use the principle of rest, laneways, mm. the micro troughs, same thing, but just a more gentle, less intensive system. And are they buying these Frisian? They own a dairy, so they're so their own this is cattle. a supplement. Yeah. And but but because it's um, a big farm, they're getting three to four times the productivity, or if not more. Yeah, they out do of that one place. That's because correct. they're running it yes. with the technology. Absolutely, it is, it is. Yes, that's correct. It's all still there, and they're doing it for Frisians. Okay, so the farm got sold. You needed to keep yourself occupied. You couldn't retire at that stage, so you went out and bought a. Shark boat and a shark license. I actually bought the shark boat before we sold any of the farms, about two years before. So we had a 62-foot shark boat called the Esther J, as well as running the Techno on the two properties. And we also had a, sh- a snapper long-lining boat too called the Challenge, which was out on a very new fishery, another New Zealand development. So I went to New Zealand learned how to snapper fish. This really, it's like Techno for snapper fishing. Lots of little hooks and amazing technique with all these little gadgets so you could set hooks for snapper incredibly quickly. Another, the Kiwis are very innovative. innovative. Uh, so we learned how to snapper fish from the Kiwis, set up this boat, 55-foot west coaster, out off robe alongside the shark boat. And I remember the first trip Ben and I went out, we, no one had ever, there was one other boat that had pioneered it. His system wasn't very good, but he was getting good catches. Ben and I went out, I reckon the third line we set, we went and had a cup of coffee and we'd set these 400 hooks in this New Zealand way to set these snapper lines. And he and Ben grabbed the gaff and we gaffed the first line and we started to pull it in and there was a big snapper, probably three kilos on the first hook. And Ben went, wow, this is pretty good. So we gaffed this snapper and ikijimied it for the ikijimi market, put him on ice. And, and then I said, Ben, have a look at this. And as we pulled the line up, as far as we could see, the line started to float because on every hook there was a snapper. And we're just looking at this line of these flopping fishes, you know, a kilometre and a half out of the ocean. It was just snapper as far as we could see. And then Ben and I just looking at each other going, oh, my God, snapper, snapper, snapper. And for three years, actually it was four years, it was like a gold rush. We just caught so many of these beautiful fish. And But after four years they moved on. We didn't fish them out, but... They're, you know, they're a strange animal and they moved and they shifted camp and it, you know, it sort of, but it was great while it lasted. Okay, well, there's a very interesting story coming up. Tell us about the sharks. And the shark net boat was a shark, um, gummy sharks. So a fish, uh, it's called a rig in New Zealand. 
around the world, it's just a small shark, no ammonia, no heavy metals, just a bottom-feeding shark, no teeth, just plates. Um, and the, so you have a long set net that's four and a half kilometres long that sits on the bottom of the ocean, passive fishing. You don't touch the net, you leave it there. And the fish, it's very selective. Small fish swim through the mesh. Larger fish don't get caught, and it takes the middle of the population out. Very sustainable fishery, known as flake around the around Australia and New Zealand. And we caught about 70 or 80 tonne of gummies a year on the Esther J. And about 20 or 30 kilos of other species were all used, you know, all edible species. And it was fantastic. It was a it was a really good fishery and it was very successful for 10 years. And what happened in the end? In the end, in the end, in the end, we, just the odd time, we actually accidentally caught the odd dolphin in our net, which is not great. Um, it was a very few, it was probably two or three a year, and it was just left unsaid. It was just one of the things that happened. Given that there are about 30 million dolphins in the southern Pacific where we are, it was not really any sort of issue in any other way other than you know it's like a it's got beautiful eyes and it's a, a very touchy-feely animal that people get very sensitive about and so the department of environment and heritage in canberra got hold of some footage of a net boat catching a dolphin so can i just interrupt because um people won't put two and two together but fisheries for one reason or another had a brainwave that they were going to put cameras on the back of each of these boats correct and they hadn't been in place long when footage came through of a dolphin coming a, over, a, coming in on a net, and the dolphin had uh, was no longer with us. It was no longer with he, us. He he drowned. He drowned. And he came up onto the table with all the other fish. That's correct. And the um, shark boat threw him back in the water. Yes, basically. and it was on camera. And so overnight, the industry was shut down. We got a text message on the twenty second of September two thousand and nine, which happened to be my birthday. Funny enough. At 9.30, ordering our boats in. And you wondered what the hell it was about. Yeah, and Harry rang me and said, I've got a... or something? Harry rang me and said, mate, I've got a text message from Athma saying I've got to come straight in. What's going on? And I went, I've got the same message. And then all the... I had uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight employees all standing on the wharf going, what do we do now? And so you were on the shore and then did someone tell you face-to-face or was it another text message? No, it's a text message. You're right, you're done. So That's we all it. rang Athma and said, what's going on? They said, well, we've got indications that you've got a, you're having an interaction with a protected species. This all. wasn't your boat. This was someone else. Someone else's boat. Well, there's only five boats. So oh, okay. Someone else's boat, yeah. And then basically the, the license was cancelled immediately on the spot. Immediately. And the industry was shut down. Completely. In this area. So between uh, well, oh. South Australia. Okay, South Australia. South Australia. And something that you had purchased for quite a lot of money yes. was now worth nothing overnight. You had boats. Well, I don't think it had any value at that particular time. Right. Because and it was everyone just panicked. No one knew what to do. It was just awful. Man. Zero. We gone from turning over a lot of money to zero. Did you have any recourse against them? Was there any conversation? We it wasn't because when we went to see Athma, I said, well, it says here that you're not allowed to have an interaction. The, the bycatch, total allowable bycatch for southern... Um, for common dolphins was zero and here's a photo of you catching one so all over see you later boys it was it was very complex and it was unfair actually essentially oh, devastated i was it was terrible okay next interesting story is 
Pippies. Did we go straight from sharks to pippies? Sold the shark, managed to get it all together, developed into a long line fishery, sold it to someone, recouped a fairly good portion of our money. Oh, that's good. So you actually reinvented yourself. Reinvented ourselves, rebuilt the boat into a long lining vessel because that was the only option we had, not net. Sold the vessel as a business so to someone else who's now using it and then moved on to what we call our South Australian pippy fishery. So you took the New Zealand long lining yes. model for snapper and adapted it for shark. Absolutely. Again. Yep. And it's still in place today. And it's also it's also a New Zealand – oh, yes, it's still in place today, absolutely. Well, the boat we sold still does it and the guy ends a fish – long, another story, but yes, it's still – He's still working. doing all right financially. Yeah. What sort of car is he driving? Do you know? Holden Barina. <laughs> is he really? <laughs> okay. Fast forward, you then decided that <clears throat> um, pippies were, which is another name for, can I mention the name? Cockle. Oh, cockles. cockles. Clam. Clams. Clams were uh, an industry that you wanted to go into next. And um, it was an industry which had been run by some guys, not really professionally. They didn't realise the sort of asset that they were sitting on. They sort of, Correct me if I'm wrong, but they were more or less catching um, a number of these things in the water every year and using them for bait. Correct. And then you had an idea with a friend of yours. It was his idea prior to mine. Okay. So he, he had the idea that he would actually turn this into a food source, which is what the local Aboriginal populations had done for thousands and thousands of years. And away it went. You got involved in that. You bought a portion of somebody's quota. Correct. What, 50% of an existing business? But again, you were way ahead of the game, weren't you? When you came in, um, you paid a high-ish price at the time, from what I recall, and bought a large quota. And then through all of these technologies and um, better ways of doing things and best practices that you introduced, you turned that industry into a very professional industry, which now is booming as part of the South Australian seafood industry. And pippies have become commonplace now at high-end restaurants. Absolutely, yeah. And that's all going very well for you. It's gone very well. And I played a part in it, but we, I have three business partners and I think we all played a very equal part. There are a number of different brains in what we now call Gore Pippi Co. Um, you know, we've got some very smart guys in the business and together we've all managed to make it something which is quite phenomenal, I think, now. It's very sustainable. It's very well run. Um, and it's come a long, long way. And its four heads have got together and generated this business. I think it's quite amazing because it's it's really um, – you've got it to the point now where you've introduced someone who harvests the, cock, or the pippies for you. Um, so you're not hands-on at all. You just uh, sort of – it all runs – It's passive It's income. Passive, in, passive income for you. It is. And – Recently, we um, spoke to one of the large financial lending um, centres in Adelaide. They really love the model. I think the whole seafood industry in South Australia is booming and you're very much part of that. That's correct. Uh, and you're actually introducing new techniques of, uh, what would you say, preserving? Packaging. Packaging. Processing. Processing. Marketing. Marketing. And you've taken from what was a. Uh, are you exporting? You export. We, we, we want. We would like to develop an export market. 
Okay. And we have some interest from Europe, particularly Spain, and we have interest in the UK, and we have interest in Singapore uh, and Hong Kong. So it's slow, it is slow, but we would like to gradually develop these three markets, which I think we will do in time. How many years have you been in it now? Uh, four. Four, okay. Well, a lot has happened in four years. It's gone from a bait fishery, just with Tom and I renting a shed and digging our own cockles to, you know... A, a corporate structure now with um well we you know, I think this year we'll harvest four hundred and fifty tons of pippies and but but you've been quite instrumental in that because I remember you you've custom you've had custom barges made so that you can get accesses access from um, normal roads across waterways and then unload cars and with implements and all that sort of stuff and so you, the the amount that someone can harvest has um had a multiplier effect as a result of all this new technology that you brought to the table. Is that right? Yeah, new systems and new approaches. Yeah, and are constantly getting better at what you're doing. Yeah, and new ways of purging the sand from the pippies and storing them and offering them to market. It's all made a massive difference. And we've automated a lot of the process as well now. Um, now, as part of that too, you've also um, had to get sort of Aboriginal um approval to be able to harvest the pippies from their land you've worked in with them i mean that's been another factor which has been you've negotiated really well i know that you've built relationships with the indigenous people um insofar as now you're doing tours um you're the only person who's got the license to do tours through that kurong that's correct precinct yeah which is pretty amazing and you know where sacred sites are and um i'm looking forward to doing one of those tours and didn't sa tourism actually speak to you about it and want it all photographed and now there's people who are actually doing more and more tours with you as a result of that, which is just like a sideline, but it's fun and it's an incredible heritage and the Aboriginal story is a fantastic one. But it's, it's an important one that, you know, a lot of people can take an important lesson from this that what could have been, um, some people might have considered a bit of a, a hurdle to work through. You've actually introduced it as a positive and now... Um, being able because it actually went so well in, in, in negotiating terms with them, you've actually built a business out of being able to access there and respect and tell the story of their culture to tourists. That's correct, yeah. And they are an amazing people and they've got a lot to offer and they've had a lot to offer us and so we've learnt a lot from them about our resource, which has been fantastic. Yes, now... Uh, I went fishing in Tumby Bay, and I've got to tell you about this story. I took my boys fishing. We're fishing off the Tumby Bay jetty. I couldn't be bothered taking a boat 10 hours drive away from Adelaide. Uh, and we bought, I think it's 500 grams of pippies. They sell them as cockles at the local caravan park there. And I took the boys down to fish on the jetty. Now, we were only, we were basically trying to get Tommy Ruffs, and they were little tiny, Tommy Ruffs, so tiny. But every time, I, the accountant in me worked out that every cockle was costing me a dollar. So these, it was for an accountant, this is like Chinese torture. Because every time I'd bait my line up, I'd put a cockle on the hook, throw it in the water, and it would disappear. Sometimes I'd do too. So every cast was costing me two bucks. <laughs> so, this was, like, I only had to do that five times. I'd worked out, and I could have gone up to the fish and chip shop and bought a piece of whiting. <laughs> See the problem? I know that's not the point, but what you've done to the industry has actually made it difficult for the recreational farmer to enjoy fishing. Now, that's a positive because we, they still all find the money 
and the price has gone through the roof. We get a lot of complaints from amateur fishermen. <laughs> well, I'm one of them, okay? But because I know you and you're such a great guy and I think that it's it's fantastic knowing the whole story behind from what you took the industry to to where it is now. And it's not all you, but you've been an instrumental part in that. Uh, but it's, it's killed... Is killed, you know, going out fishing and coming back with 30 whiting. I don't know what the bag limit now is, but it used to be back then. Uh, for And, you know, knowing that you've invested five, ten bucks in cockles now, well, it's probably 40 or $50 in cockles. Lucky for Kim, he gets free bait for life, though. <laughs> That's right. It's one of the perks of my role. Okay, can we talk about your... You're taking me fishing soon, and you're going to take me to a special spot that you've got down at Robe. Beachport. Beachport. Can you tell us a little bit, describe the location to us? Without giving the actual specifics away of where it is, but why do you like it? Why is it so important to you? Oh, Beachport's a sort of where I grew up, the coastal town near our farm. Been going there since, you know, I could walk, essentially. And it's a very pristine, beautiful place on the Southern Ocean, uh, 400 kilometres south of Adelaide. Wild, rolling swell, a lot of reef, massive rolling sand dunes that go for about 150 kilometres. Um, it's very difficult to access. It's very remote. There are sandy tracks. You need a good, not any four-wheel drive. You need an excellent four-wheel drive to access this, these places. And in the lower southeast, we have a fish which I love called a sweep, which is a silver fish, like a drummer. You know, it grows to about a kilo and a half in weight. Beautiful fish, fresh off the barbecue. Fantastic fighting fish. And I have a spot down there called the Five Mile Drift where we go down to the Five Mile and we've got this great big sand dune and get up the top of the sand dune and go around this little scrub track and we sneak in behind this little tiny two-wheel drive track. You need a rucksack, put a rucksack on, some sturdy shoes and you climb down a cliff all the way down to the bottom of this cliff and there's what we call it, there's a wave-cut platform essentially which is just a wave-cut reef that, and it's a very specific one. It's sort of like a horseshoe about the size of a football field, perhaps not quite that big, three-quarters the size of an Aussie Rules footy field. And it's got a little peninsula out either side, and in this hole, these huge southern ocean swirls come slamming in, and it's like a blowhole, and it shoots water up into the air 30, 40 feet every time a wave breaks. So it's like being in this bizarre sort of, where you get wet from the water spraying down from this blowhole. And in this swirling kelp sort of hole, throw your cockle out with a little tiny rod and you get these great big sweep every time really if you go there at the right time you get them well you do you get them every time and you're sitting out there in the elements with waves breaking up around your legs and often get pushed off the reef catching sweep and it's like man against sea so it's like hunting for fish but the elements are everywhere you always fall off the reef because the fish are there when it's a bit rough so you have your heart in your mouth You've got to be brave and you're out on the end of this reef and it is frightening. And I go there on my own and last year, because you know, I'm nearly 50, I'm not as agile as I thought I was, and I got swept off the reef a couple of times and actually got swept out into the water, grabbed a bit of kelp, pulled myself back and realised, you know, I'm 40 k's from anywhere. There's no phone reception. There's no one there. There's nothing. It's just you, a rod, a cockle and these beautiful beautiful fresh silver fish in these big ocean swells and you're out there man against elements hunting these fish and it's exhilarating and you feel so present you hold on to your rod when you get washed off oh there's a there's a funny story but <laughs> generally yes if 
we got time for a little story? Yes, absolutely. My friend Johnny Boxham, uh, who's the guy that committed suicide 10 years ago now, when he just before, probably uh, probably five years before he died, he and I used to go to this fishing spot all the time. But one side is where I was describing. The other side is next level. That is seriously dangerous. And two people have been killed there uh, back in the late 70s, uh, mid-70s. It's very dangerous. There's a peg on the ground out the very end of a very far reef. And I only go out there when there's someone. I never go out there on my own because it's just too dangerous. And so I was there with Johnny Box and another guy called Andy Forster. And their two girlfriends, not mine, but their two girlfriends were there as well on the shore sort of watching us fish. And I told them, look, every time I take someone out there, I full explanation about the safety issue. I say, look, this is very dangerous. We're going to go about 80 metres out on a little reef out into the Southern Ocean we are going to catch one fish after the other. They'll be as long as your arm and it will blow your socks off, but it is very dangerous. So I said, right, boys, let's go. You follow me and you tread where I tread. You do what I do and you don't deviate from it at all. You do what I do. You watch me and you follow me. You put your foot where I put mine. And they went, oh, God, okay, okay, okay. So we're walking out the reef with our backpacks and our rods and we get out the reef and I throw my rod in and sure enough, whack, can barely pull it in. This enormous big two-kilo sweep. And it's flapping and I'm trying to wrestle it on the reef and I'm throwing it into my backpack and Jono's going, oh my God, this is amazing. And he's got really excited. He's throwing his rod in. He's got a fish and Andy's doing the same thing. I looked at the ocean and I went, it's time to go. There's a big swell coming. We're right on the end of this point. We have to walk all the way back to the reef and there's holes in the reef. And I, Jono's fighting a fish and I said, John, pull the fish off. We're going. And I said, Andy, we're going. And they went, oh yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, okay. I said, no, we're going. So I said, we pulled our rods in and we started to walk. And I said, I don't want you to panic and I don't want you to look you behind. You just follow me. Don't look back. Just tread where I tread. And what did Andy do? Andy turned around and looked behind him. And there's like a wall of water coming. And Andy just went, Shh. he panicked. He just panicked and ran. He started to run overtook towards the you. shore, overtook me. And then John turned around and he saw Andy running and he panicked as well. And so they both took off and the wave broke over the reef. I turned around into the wave and I kept my footing because I've done it a thousand times and I stood up and I had my hand, my sort of hunching against this breaking wave on the reef. And then I turned around, Jono and Andy were nowhere to be seen. They were gone. And I looked in the white water and there's Andy out in the middle of the bay, the little half the size of a footy field. He's out in the middle in the bay and Jono's tumbling against the reef and then I suddenly saw where he was and he'd latched himself onto the reef like a crab, taking a big breath of water I couldn't see him at all. And then I, when the wave started to subside, there's Andy in the middle, sort of struggling around in the middle of the, you know, in this bay. And Jono sort of, the wave breaks and there's this crab, like a crab. This Jono's latched himself onto the reef and eventually the wave dis- dissipated and he was still latched onto the reef. He'd taken a big breath and he went, <gasps> came up and he's, his fingers were all torn and bleeding and all his rod and fishing gear were all gone and Andy swims in from out in the middle of the bay and their two girlfriends were on the shore. Just I could just see these two girls, Sue and Nikki, and they both had their hands on their heads just going in horror and disbelief watching their respective boyfriends get washed away and disappear in the swell. We, oh. Did, um, did, so one guy lost his fishing gear. Did the other girl, guy lose his fishing yeah, gear? Yeah, rod, gear, everything. And you were fine. I was fine. I'm not so keen on going to this fishing spot. Well, maybe we go to the other one, which is not as dangerous. Less intense. Yes. What time of the day do you get out there to go fishing? Depends on the tide. Right. But like a Friday afternoon sort of? No, it's tidal. doesn't matter. So it could be morning. Yeah, morning's good. Afternoon's good. Middle of the day, not as good usually. But morning or afternoon on the rising tide, about 
an hour after the low. Not too much swell. Perfect. Well, John, let's wrap up. Thank you ever so much for being a guest today. It's been a really interesting conversation with you. Thank you so much for just, I don't know, I think you just sort of add this element of adventure into my life and I love going holidaying with you. I love being a friend of yours. It's just so much fun. Really enjoy it. So thanks ever so much for being a part of the program today. You're welcome, Kim. Thanks for having me. Thank you.